So Mark uh, chapter 9, verse 7. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And then from verse 30. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him, because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Father in heaven, you are good and your love for us endures forever. And your love for us is shown as you give us this word. Father, you are good. And as we see this hard word today, help us to first and foremost remember that you are a good father, telling us a hard word that we need to hear and we need to listen to and respond. Father, I pray that you'll bless us by your spirit, convict us of areas of sin and change that need to happen. Not only convict us, but work your spirit in our hearts and our lives towards change. Father, bless me and help me to speak clearly from this passage, to present it before your people with all its weight. And we pray that you'll do this for your glory and our joy as we grow in holiness together. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Imagine for a moment that you are on MasterChef. Yes, every single year that MasterChef is on, I shall be referring to it in sermons. Imagine you're on MasterChef. Imagine you're cooking away and you're in trouble. Things are not going your way. The dish that you're planning is just not 
coming together. And then the judges walk over to have a conversation with you. They're wondering what you're up to. They listen to your plans of your masterpiece and they look a little worried. Are you really sure that putting salmon and white chocolate together is a good idea? They ask you. Maybe you should consider using something savory rather than something sweet. Now, it's at a time like this that you've got a big choice to make. Do you listen to the judges and obey their word, or do you forge on ahead to certain white chocolate salmon disaster? Now, in the world of MasterChef, listening and responding rightly can help you avoid judgment and elimination. Now, in a quirky way, the choices and consequences on a TV show echo and parallel the choices and consequences that we face, but in a bigger and more eternally impactful way. Listening and responding rightly to the words of Jesus can help us avoid judgment and elimination. Last week, Ben took us through the first half of chapter 9, where we heard God the Father speak in the presence of some of the disciples, Jesus is my son, listen to him. Now that passage then got broken up slightly with the story of a healing of a boy with an unclean spirit. But now, in the second half of chapter 9, we return to this rapid-fire collection of teaching moments. Jesus speaks, and what he says here is crucial to listen to. In this section, we learn a little bit more about what his kingdom is like, and we need to listen to him and respond in faith. And make no mistake, let's be very clear right here at the start, that what Jesus says here in these verses are not easy to respond to. They are not easy to obey. Remember back in chapter 8, Jesus said that if anyone wanted to be saved, they had three things to do. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. If you want to be saved by Jesus, there are three things that need to be done. You need to deny yourself, you need to take up your cross, and then follow him. And in today's passage, uh, today's passage is filled with listening to Jesus on what it means to deny yourself and to follow him. And a quick note. As you probably heard in the reading, the passage we're looking at today, it feels a little bit choppy. Uh, Jesus seems to jump from topic to topic, uh, but I do think that this means that this is the sort of passage we need to keep coming back to and taking in in small bites. I think if you try to apply this all at once, you might end up with a hernia and crumpled in the corner of of great discouragement. So be encouraged to keep coming back to these words and keep working on something a bit at a time. Uh, And as we see, we'll be challenged to keep being radical about the way we engage with what Jesus is saying here. So first things first, in verse 30 to 32, we have Jesus heading off back through Galilee. Uh, By this time, Jesus has gained a fairly well-known reputation. And as he goes through Galilee, we see at the end of verse 30 that Jesus doesn't want anyone to know about his travel plans. Why? Verse 31 because he was teaching his disciples again about his death and resurrection. It was only back in chapter 8 that he talked about his death and resurrection. And in the middle of chapter 9, he, uh, at the transfiguration afterwards, he mentions again his suffering. 
Here again, he speaks very plainly to them in verse 31. Read with me. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. He can't get much clearer than that. And you would think by now that if the disciples still had questions and didn't quite get what he meant, that they would ask for clarification. Instead, we read in verse 32, they're too afraid to ask him. Despite all that Jesus has said and all that Jesus has done so far and everything that they've seen and we've seen in the last eight, nine and a half chapters, they're still acting in their fear. Now, when the disciples do speak up, it's, a rather, dis- it's rather disappointing to find out what they were talking about. On the, road to, uh, on the road there, Jesus notices they're having a bit of a discussion, perhaps even a heated discussion. And so Jesus turns and asks them, hey guys, what are you talking about? What were you discussing on the way here? And their response? Silence. An embarrassed silence. We read in verse 34 that they were arguing arguing about which of the disciples were the greatest. Jesus has just spoken about his death and resurrection. They're too afraid to ask about that because on their hearts and minds is trying to work out who is the greatest among them. Working out who is the best is such a human thing, isn't it? We have halls of fame for sports players. We hand out gold medals to athletes every four years at something called the Olympics. Everybody remembers that it was Usain Bolt who won the 100-meter sprint at the 2008 Beijing Olympics. But does anyone remember who got silver or bronze? Silver was Richard Thompson from Trinidad and Tobago, and bronze was Walter Dix from the United States of America. Just FYI. But nobody remembers who came second or third, because we're so focused on who came first, who is the greatest. Now, if we're not careful, this sort of mentality can creep into our lives unhelpfully. We can start comparing and ranking ourselves against each other, even if we're not open about it. It can all be in our hearts. We begin to compare our kids in church to work out who's doing better at parenting. We silently judge the godliness and maturity of other believers. We begin to think that we're better Bible study leaders or morning tea providers compared to other people. And what we want is we want recognition for that. We want a gold medal for that. It's not enough to be encouraged for our service and our growth, but we want to hear the words, your morning tea is always the best. Or, I prefer your Bible study leading than that other person. Those are the words which are our gold medals. We want that applause. That, that is the greatness that we are, we are after. It's such a human thing, isn't it? To want to be the greatest, to want to be on top. And in comes Jesus and he says, actually, n- no. Greatness in his kingdom is measured in a very different way. Greatness in our world is measured by who can get to the top. Greatness in Jesus' kingdom is measured by who can get to the bottom. Have a look at verse 35. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must 
be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Jesus takes a child and says, If you humble yourself, even to the point of receiving one of these little ones, you'll then be great in my kingdom. Uh, in the first century, children were the lowliest of all people in society. They were the bottom of the rung. To welcome a child was actually an act of humility. If Jesus was using our language today, he might say, if you want to be the greatest, start changing some nappies. Right? Humble yourself to love and serve others. Consider them worthy of even your most humble service. This is the sort of service, this sort of service is done in the same way that Jesus served us, the greatest of all, stooping down to serve us, dirty, rotten enemies of God. He served us by dying in our place. Now, if we are to come after Jesus, we are to deny ourselves. We must kill off the desire in our hearts to want to be first, to want to to, have, to want to have greatness in the eyes of this world. If we are to come after Jesus, we must follow him and we must follow his example of service. Jesus was the servant of all, even going so far as to wash the feet of the disciples, giving his life to serve us. And if our king did this for us, then there is nothing too low or beneath us to do for each other. Our king served us we are to serve everyone else. See, the world's race is to the top. The Christian race is actually to the bottom. If you say you follow Jesus, then you'll be finding ways, left, right, and center, to serve everyone around you. And I want to, us to be encouraged to think as well, be as generous as you can with the limits of how far you'll go to serve others. Real service is sacrificial, it's not really serving others if it's easy and convenient. Service takes sacrifice. The disciples are silent when asked why they were talking, what they were talking about. At this point, they pipe up. In verse 38, they seem to be a little worried that some stranger over there is healing and casting out demons in Jesus' name. So they were so concerned that they even tried to go and stop him. Now, for the reasons spelt out at, in, at the end of verse 38, because he was not following us. You can see their train of thought. If you aren't with us, you're against us. And then Jesus flips this around. No, if they aren't against us, they are actually for us. Remember from last week, the disciples, they couldn't cast out a particular demon because they weren't praying. Here is some stranger casting out demons in the name of Jesus. It's obvious that he believes and trusts Jesus. He's, using, he's not using Jesus' name in some sort of stoop, superstitious kind of way. Jesus tells the disciples, don't stop him. Surprisingly, he says in verse 39, no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For, no one, for the one who is not against us is for us. See, if you truly believe and trust in Jesus, there's no way you'd say anything evil about him. The disciples found it hard to believe 
that there were other people out there who had heard Jesus, had trusted him, and were doing his ministry. Now, it's a little warning that you can get so caught up in your own little world and start to think that if you're not on board with us, then you're against us. Or to begin to think that we are the only place that's truly doing ministry for Jesus. Now, there are lots of people and organizations in this world and in our city and in our suburb that are doing faithful ministry for Jesus. And Jesus is saying we should welcome them. Now, let's not be naive about this as well. The rest of the Bible is full of warnings about false teachers and false doctrine. Just because you call yourself a Christian or evangelical doesn't mean that you're faithful. So I would like to say that we need to have sharp heads to know who is with us and who is against us. But if we're listening to Jesus, we will also have gospel generosity to promote ministries that aren't exactly like us, but are doing good ministry. Organizations like the Gospel Coalition, Together for the Gospel, or even the Fellowship of Independent Evangelical Churches. These guys are doing great things to promote gospel unity and partnership. Check them out online for more information. Uh, If you're into music, you know that we sing a lot of the stuff from Keith and Kristen Getty, Modern Hymn Writers. Sovereign Grace music remains one of my personal favorites. Indelible Grace does a great job of reworking old hymns. City of Light has recently released some really good music. They're a, a group from an Anglican church down in Sydney. SLE Church has a Spotify playlist, right? Go online and follow that. So whether it's church music or, or music, uh, church ministries, there are some really good people out there doing really good things. So there is no reason why we should have a hive mindset that we're the only ones doing ministry properly. If we're listening to Jesus here, we'll be on the lookout and celebrating and welcoming those who are working in Jesus' name. Now from the encouraging to the serious, Jesus' words shift gears from verses 42 to 50. These are weighty verses. They are about the seriousness of sin and we must listen very carefully to Jesus here. First, Jesus says some hard things about leading other people to sin. Little ones in verse 42. I, I don't think just means children. I think it's a picture of the believer. And with a full-on word picture, Jesus says that if you cause another Christian to stumble in sin, it would be better that you strangle yourself and throw yourself into the sea than to strangle the faith of another Christian. This is serious business. Are your actions causing another person to stumble? Now, Paul deals with this issue in a couple of places in his letters, in Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8. And in both of those passages, you specifically have older, more mature Christians acting in ways that cause younger Christians to struggle. When you boil it down, it's the older Christians who are not thinking about or serving their younger brothers and sisters. They are doing their own thing and pushing for their own rights. They think to themselves, I know what I'm doing is not wrong, but they don't stop to think for a moment about whether or not it's loving to others. So here's an example I noticed this week, and I'm not pointing fingers at anyone in particular, just a general 
comment, but I wonder if some of us have considered whether or not posting up on Facebook or Instagram that you're watching season eight of Game of Thrones. Is that a good idea? A TV show that, let's be honest, glorifies nudity and sex on screen. Is it a good idea to be promoting something like that to all of your friends? Jesus is saying, be very careful. Because the consequences of leading someone into sin is a disaster for them and a disaster for you. Listen to Jesus on this. Seek wisdom if you need to. But do not let your rights or your pleasures cause someone else to fall into sin. Now, Jesus' words about sin go deeper in verses 43 to 47. In these famous words about the gravity of sin, Jesus says, take radical action. Listen again to these weighty words in verse 43. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Okay, some comments before we apply. First, Jesus isn't speaking literally here. He's not asking us to physically hurt ourselves in order to avoid sin. A few years ago, one of my friends emailed myself and a few other close male friends. He was greatly discouraged in his battle against sexual sin and lust, and he was considering getting getting himself castrated. The best reply came from another friend who basically said that even if he went that far, it would do nothing to prevent sexual sin in his heart and his mind. And that's right. Remember back in Mark chapter 7, Jesus says there that it's what comes out of your heart that makes you unclean. Physically cutting off body parts is not going to solve the problem. So what is Jesus saying here then? He's using what we call hyperbole over-the-top language to illustrate how serious sin is. Jesus is saying sin is so serious that it requires radical action to take care of it. Second, it requires radical action because the consequence of non-action is unthinkable. Hell, the, the place of eternal dreadfulness. Jesus is doing a loving thing by telling us this. He is warning us clearly that inaction on sin will lead to eternal suffering. Australian rugby player Israel Folau recently got into trouble for telling people on Instagram that if people didn't repent of their sin, they would end up in hell. And he's probably going to lose his job as a rugby player for that. Now, quite a few Christians, including one prominent pastor who wrote an opinion piece in the Sydney Morning Herald, said that Jesus' main message was love and peace, not judgment. 
it's half right. Jesus did speak of love and peace, but he also mentioned hell and judgment more often than he talked about heaven. If you just simply add up the numbers as you walk through the Gospels, Jesus speaks more of judgment and hell than he does of heaven. And Jesus is the person in the Bible who mentions hell the most. He did not want people to go there. Now let me dispel one common misconception about hell. We tend to talk about heaven as the eternal presence of God and hell as the eternal absence of God. But that's not quite true. Hell is the eternal absence of God's goodness and grace and mercy and kindness. But God is there. God is the King and Lord of hell, not Satan. What people experience in hell is not the eternal absence of God, but the eternal presence of God's wrath and judgment. Jesus would face this wrath and judgment for three hours on the cross. And if Jesus spoke about hell the most and spoke about it more often than he spoke about heaven, then we need to listen to him because he does not want anyone to go there. And so he's saying in verse 30, verses 30, 43 to 48, do whatever is necessary to get rid of the sin in your life. Don't baby it. Don't protect it. Take radical action to avoid it. When we first started this Gospel of Mark sermon series, I got into a bit of trouble with people because I spoiled the twist ending to the movie The Sixth Sense. <laughs> if you haven't heard that, go back online and listen to my first sermon in this series. Now, now in my defense, that movie is 20 years old. If you haven't seen it by now, that's your fault. <laughs> so then let me talk about another recent movie then. No, I am not going to spoil it, okay? All right? Unlike this person in white, if you didn't hear, that person in white, they're receiving medical treatment. If you didn't hear, apparently he was a moviegoer in Hong Kong who had just seen the movie and was exiting the cinema. Noticing the very long line of people waiting to go see Avengers Endgame, he started very loudly telling people in the line, spoilers of the movie. He then got beaten up <laughs> by those waiting in line. Now, I am not condoning violence at all. So let me be clear about that. I'm going to say it again. I am not condoning violence. But what that illustrates is the lengths we will go to to avoid spoilers for the movie. Most of us know we're not beating up people in the line, but most of us who have seen that movie were disciplined enough to not carelessly go on the internet or social media and read spoilers for the movie. If only we had that same discipline and energy to avoid sin. What radical steps do you need to take to cut out sin in your life? What is your eye, your hand, your foot that you need to do something radical with? 
you struggle with pride, would you be willing to humble yourself and seek constant feedback from those who love you? I've heard sermons on this passage often, uh, particularly to those who struggle with the problem of pornography, pornography and sexual temptation and lust. And I've heard suggestions that maybe you could throw your computer out or cut off your internet. I've heard people do that. That's one possibility. Here's another. If you're willing to pay $12 a month for something like Netflix, would you be willing to pay $12 a month for something like Covenant Eyes, which is an internet accountability and filter. We invest money into our entertainment. Would we invest money into our holiness? You think about other areas of sin in your life. What radical steps might you need to take in order to cut them out of your life? Now, at this point, I want to put one caveat on this. The danger of putting a caveat on this is that you kind of soften what is meant to be the big, impactful words of Jesus. Jesus is shocking us into action here. But I do need to say this. Jesus isn't talking about stumbling and failing in a sin that you struggle with. He's talking about a sin we love more than we love him. He's talking about a sin which is the idol of our lives. A Christian's life is one of repentance, of turning away from sin and turning to Jesus in trust and faith. The sin that can throw you into hell is the sin that you love more than you love repenting. It's better that you forsake some pleasure or sin now so that you are not thrown into hell because you loved that sin more than you loved Jesus. Or to put it positively, nobody comes to heaven and in the presence of God and regrets that they didn't get to fully participate in sin more. Nobody in heaven will grieve their missed opportunities to sin. You don't get there and go, oh, God, you're really good, but I just really wish I did get to see that season of Game of Thrones. Now I've missed out. Why me, Lord? Nobody will do that. You will never regret taking radical action against sin. Final words of verses 49 to 50. Take serious action against sin, not just for your sake, but for all our sakes. Uh, Jesus says that everyone will be salted by fire. Now, there are a few ways to read this, but probably the easiest and best way, uh, the way that makes most sense of the passage, is that fire is a metaphor for judgment. To be salted by fire is to undergo trials and suffering, to be tested by God. And the point that Jesus makes here is that we are to not lose our saltiness. Uh, We are not to lose what makes us distinct from the world. Now, to be salty in today's youth language, uh, as I have learned, is to be a jealous person. But to be the salt of the world and to be a salty Christian here, as Jesus is talking about, is totally different. Salt is a good thing. It makes food come alive. It's a preserving agent. Jesus says that we are to be the salt of the earth. We are to lovingly and winsomely bring the wonderful healing message of the gospel of Jesus to this world. Jesus is saying, don't lose that. Don't lose the goodness of what makes a Christian. And we need to not lose it for the sake of peace with each other. 
See, in the context, I think, to be salty here is also, is also to be diligent in battling against sin. To, being salty means being repentant. My repentance is needed not just for me, but also for you. Robert Murray McShane, a famous Scottish preacher who died at the age of 30, famously said, my people's greatest need is my personal holiness. If you're a leader in the church or someone who disciples anyone else, make that your personal mantra. And even if you're not a leader, keep being salty, keep being radical with your sin, keep repenting, because we, the church, need the personal encouragement of your walk with Jesus. Now, here's the main point and purpose of today's passage. Disciples of Jesus, listen to him. And this, in this passage, we hear Jesus teaching about his death and resurrection and about greatness in his kingdom. Jesus teaches on those who are for Jesus. And he challenges, he's challenged us on the seriousness of sin. If we're disciples of Jesus, we will listen to him and we will respond in obedience. Doing so means we can avoid judgment and elimination. Now, if you've been with us for any length of time, you'll know that we teach that the Bible is to be read as one unified story. The technical phrase for this is biblical theology. We often say that everything in the Old Testament points forward to Jesus. Now, biblical theology isn't just for the Old Testament. It's a way of reading the entire Bible. And so even here in the Gospel of Mark, in chapter 9, we need to do some biblical theology. When we hear these words in isolation, when we look at what Jesus is saying here just on its own, it sounds impossible. The bar is set so high, almost as if you have to be sinless and perfect before you can be with God in heaven. But when we hear these words with a view to the death and resurrection of Jesus, then we see that this teaching isn't impossible. In fact, it is very possible. It is possible because Jesus pays the penalty for our sins in his death and gives us new life in his resurrection. In that, new res- in that resurrection life, we have new life. If you trust in Jesus, you are being transformed. If you trust in Jesus, the grace of God compels you toward change. And so these words from Jesus today, in the light of the death and resurrection of Jesus, are not impossible after all. But now, by faith in Jesus, we aim to listen to him, and obey him. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, help us, we cry, to be good listeners. Help us to identify the sins in our lives that need radical action. Help us to love and to serve each other. Seek greatness in your kingdom. Help us to listen to these words and to obey as we keep trusting you. Amen.